Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hey, you guys, welcome back to Bar Fights. I'm so happy you're here. As always, um, we've got an amazing show for you today. Um, we talk a lot about keeping kids safe on this show and keeping kids safe through education, which is so critical. So we're going to dive into that today with this amazing guest, Nicole Braddock Bromley. She's an advocate, an activist, and a survivor of child sex abuse. That sounds familiar to me. Um, <laughs> she's authored four books. She's produced two films and she's got her own podcast, which I highly recommend called the One Voice Podcast. And in 2014, Nicole founded a nonprofit. It's called One Voice for Freedom, and it works to stop child sex slavery around the world through prevention education. We're going to dive into her story today. We're going to dive into her work today. Nicole, welcome to Bar Fights. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you here and to kind of lay the foundation for our listeners. If you wouldn't mind, please, walking us through sort of your journey. What brought you here? Um, mm -hmm. Why are you doing the work you're doing? I know that's a big loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Start wherever you want to start. <laughs> All right. I got you. Well, okay. I guess um, it really goes back to my childhood. I think, you know, something you can really relate to as well. Just Growing up, I grew up in the Midwest, you know, a small town where everybody knows everybody. And, you know, I was kind of like the poster kid of our community. I was, you know, a straight A student. I was an athlete, student council president. I was the homecoming queen. I mean, it was all the things that, you know, a Midwestern girl strives for. And on the outside, just, you know, everyone thought I had the perfect life. Um, the perfect family, just everything seemed ideal. But the truth was, you know, I had been sexually abused my entire childhood by my stepfather. And this was a man in our community who was well known, well respected. No one would have ever guessed that this was going on in my family between him and I. And so this was a secret that I carried for a decade of my childhood. It went on until I was 14 years old and, um, and that was a real turning point in my life. And we can dive into that if you want, but I think really fast forward to today, that's my why it's like, I want to be a voice for those who never felt like they could speak up. You know, I had so much shame. I felt like it was my fault. I was worried about ruining everyone's lives if I were to talk about it. And I wasn't even sure if it was wrong because, you know, this was education and, and surely everybody trusted him. I should too. So it's all these things. So I just felt like, okay, if I can just keep this a secret, but no, the best thing was when I did find my voice at 14 and spoke out and, um, and again, we can dive into some of that, but really that is what fueled me then as an adult to realize breaking the silence 
telling your story is the first step to healing. And healing is a lifelong journey, but that is what really empowers me to be a voice today and and really fuels my work. Wow. And I love, I mean, the profile of what you just said, you know, that perfect life, straight A's, mm-hmm. you know, homecoming right. queen, and this guy who's a pillar of the community. If I could like pick that story up and plop it on so many of my cases, yeah. it's the exact same thing. Board, you know, church goer, mm-hmm. everybody trusts, everybody loves. And also that small town thing too. I, I think sometimes people don't realize how mm-hmm. much that can play into it when it's a small town and everybody respects this person and knows this family. Yeah. Their barrier to being believed is mm-hmm so heightened like that's you, right you, you against the world right you <laughs> against the community so what what Absolutely. did that look like when you were 14 how did you disclose who believed you mm-hmm. who didn't believe you what did that look like yeah great question well um I think it really came to a head where um you know I was 14 and we had just gone on this family vacation we went to the Bahamas and I remember getting on the airplane and just thinking oh my gosh like we're going to make so many great family memories because it wasn't always horrible yeah. you know if he yeah. was a monster all the time I probably would have told but he yeah. wasn't and that's what was so confusing and so we're going on this great family vacation thinking it's going to be wonderful and I came back with some of the worst memories of my life and mm-hmm. That at that age for me, also, I was starting to recognize, I mean, like the Michael Jackson case was on TV at the time. And like, you know, people started talking about this more than they ever had. No one ever talked about sexual abuse when I was growing up, but I started hearing about it more and I was starting to connect the pieces and I just felt awful and I wanted to tell, but I was so afraid and it just kind of came up in the car with my mom. We were driving in the car and she had noticed some things that were just a little bit bizarre about my stepdad on that trip. And she was talking to me about it. And this was something she never, I thought they had the perfect marriage. I thought she was in love. And it was the first time she'd really shared anything like that with me. And for some reason, I felt like that was like the crack to the open door. Do you know what I mean? And so she was talking to me about that. And she turned to me in the car and she said, Nicole, has he done anything strange around you? And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I just hinted to the fact and she looked at me and she said, I don't even know why she said it, but she said, has he ever touched you? And I, I just, I froze and I didn't know what to do because it was like, this was, this was now or never, you know? And so then right then and there, I just, I told her he had, and she slammed on the brakes. She pulled the car to the side of the road. And that was the first time, I mean, 10 years of sexual abuse, the first time in my life, I knew it was wrong just by her reaction, you know? And so kind of, you know, things I'm really grateful. My mom believed me because I've been speaking for 23 years, college campuses, churches, conferences, and the number of people who tell me their mom didn't believe them. It is astounding. It is truly astounding. And that's what really has fueled me even teaching this to parents, like leave your child. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so we're in that car. And then eventually my mom did tell the police she reported it and we left our home together my mom and I and he had denied everything to the police and we were you know planning the whole court process and it was really hard because I felt like I had completely shattered my family 
because I spoke up, but I was so grateful to be believed and to feel validated, you know, and protected. So I was grateful for that. Um, But Sarah, it really comes to a crazy point. Only um, seven days later, my stepfather ended up taking his life. Wow. Yeah. And so that was another part that, you know, healing's a lifelong journey and dealing with like the guilt of that um, was really hard and still is at times, but I still truly stand on the fact that I did the right thing in telling and, um, and that it wasn't my fault and that, you know, I was, I deserved to be protected. And so, yeah, so that's kind of that portion of the story. Yeah. Cole, that's, that's giving me chills. I mean, that's (laughs) unbelievable. Um, I like what you said, and I think it's important to paint the picture of 10 years of child sex abuse Mm -hmm. and still not being quite sure that what was happening wasn't right. And I think sometimes people say, well, Mm -hmm. how could you not have known that? Right. And I think, yeah, put yourself in the mind of a child where that's essentially all they know. And it's this person that they see as a parent that mm-hmm. I mean, we, yeah. we blindly trust our parents as kids. Right. And because yeah. we should, because yeah. we're children and they're our parent and a parents exactly. unconditionally love mm-hmm. us. Like there's, there's, you know, that implicit just trust and bond mm-hmm. and, um, so I, I really appreciate you painting that picture that mm-hmm. 10 years of child sex abuse, you're 14 and you're mm-hmm. still going, is this really that wrong? Is it me? Yeah. Is it, yeah. you know, maybe this happens to other kids or, you know, you don't, your gut knew your psyche probably knew mm-hmm. on a deeper level, but it's yeah. such a mind fuck, excuse my language mm-hmm. yeah. when you are a child. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to, and to bear the weight of yeah. holding the family together, right? Yes. Just by keeping a family secret. I mean, yes. as a 10-year-old kid, okay, well, I can do that part. Yeah. But I sure as hell don't want to send my dad to prison yeah. or my mom to lose the love of her life or yeah. for all of these accolades and this reputation that I have in my community to shatter that. I don't want people yeah. to know this disgusting, shameful thing that I've been a part of. Yeah, you know, and so some level probably feeling unsafe. Like if I say anything, will we lose our house and I won't yeah. have anywhere to live and I might yeah. lose my mom, you know? Absolutely. And uh, those were the threats too. You know, there was yeah. the side of, you know, I'm teaching you all little girls go through this. No one talks about it. You know, I love you and, and you can trust me, all of that. But there was the opposite side of, I'll kill your dog if you ever tell anybody. No one will believe you. And you'll also lose your mom because she'll divorce me. Yeah. Like, who are you going to live with? So, yeah, it's it's both sides. And the threats are definitely a part of it, too. Yeah. Wow. I, I want to talk um, a little bit about what your healing and coming out of that even looked mm. like and here mm. you are this articulate beautiful successful woman how do you go from this guy's just committed suicide because you spoke out yeah. at 14 to to being able to even do the work you're doing today yeah well yeah that's a very good question sometimes I ask that myself yeah, you're like but... I have no idea <laughs> no. <laughs> but I would tell you you know again, I've been speaking over 20 years on stages and I still 
get so nervous, you know, but it's afterwards. It's the people that come up and say, I've never told anyone my story, but Mm -hmm. you know, that is why I do it because I know the power of having a safe place to, to tell and, and, and just being able like the me too movement, just saying me too. You don't have to say what happened to you. If I feel like I have been, um, a person who can give others the gift of going second. So if I tell my story, it gives them that gift that they can just say me too. They don't even have to get into all of it. And just identifying yourself as a survivor or having gone through some similar trauma, that's the first step to healing and good job, you know? So that again is the motivation, but how do I get there? I, I think it, you know, a lot of it has come through my healing to be able to offer that to people on the journey behind me. So what my healing has looked like a lot of, um, you know, realizing it wasn't my fault. That was a big journey. I really struggled with that for a long time. And I couldn't even talk about certain parts of it that like, oh, yeah, I know it's not supposed to be my fault, but they don't know about that one time or this or how, you know, whatever. And really being willing to talk about those parts those most shameful, dirtiest parts of it and hearing someone else say that doesn't matter. It's still not your fault, Nicole. That, you know, in therapy was very, very instrumental for me. Um, and I think the other part of it too was just knowing I wasn't alone. Yeah. You know, for years I thought I was the only one who was going through something like this. And then come to find out that sadly, I mean, it's like one in every three of us women, it's horrific, the numbers, but I think that has helped me realize like there's so many other silent survivors out there that need to know the same things that it wasn't their fault. You know, they didn't ask for this. They didn't deserve this. Um, So I think that that really helped me as well. So the community of survivors, and we might talk about that later the work that I'm doing in that way, but that community has been very helpful in like, you know, noticing, okay, I do this today. I'm 43 years old and this seems connected to my childhood trauma. And then someone else be like, oh my gosh, same because it is. And that validation has been very healing for me too. Yeah. I relate so much to everything you're saying. Um, so we, you, you, you hit on therapy as a modality, mm-hmm. which I'm just a huge believer in. Have you tried yes. other things, specific modalities mm-hmm. that have been sort of more helpful mm-hmm. than others? Yeah, I really am a fan of EMDR. Yes. I think that has been really helpful um, through my healing journey with therapy. Another thing as of late is the IFS, the internal family systems. I don't learn. Well, I feel like you already do because before we got on this interview, I was reading your letter to your younger self Mm. and it has a lot to do with that. It's that there is a core self, a core part of you, but then when trauma enters in, it's almost like little parts of you break off. So you have parts of you who today you might be triggered and like it, a manager part of you comes out and it's like, okay, I have to control everything. I have to make it sure everybody's okay. And then there's other parts of you that are like, you know, they shrink back or there's firefighters who immediately, they just want to like pummel everybody if you're triggered. So it's like you almost break off 
little pieces of your personality as a sort of protection. And that has helped me a lot because I realized that many of us survivors have done lots of different tactics as we've grown up to protect ourselves and literally to survive. And yet the survivors I talked with on a daily basis oftentimes are ashamed of those parts of them. Like they feel so much shame over their coping in order to survive the abuse. And I'm like, that is actually to be celebrated. You were creative and figured shit out to get here today. Because what, if you hadn't, you may be dead. You may still be in that relationship. Like there's these things that we have done. And so I just feel like that is such an important part of healing is understanding the power of survival to getting you where you are rather than shame over those parts. That's so interesting. My brain is just like, oh, (laughs) you know, like, and I talk to survivors in my work all day, every day as Mm -hmm. you do. And you hear all of those different mechanisms and some are better than others. Let's be right. You know, Mm -hmm. I hear all the time. Um, For me, it was not leaving my house. It was literally just Mm -hmm. protecting myself by keeping myself in a bubble. And like what you just said, the shame around that, like what's Mm -hmm. wrong with me? Get out there. Why can't you function like everybody else? Right? Like you just beat yourself up. But in reality, that Mm -hmm. was a way to keep myself. So maybe it wasn't such a bad, you know, thing. It was like me trying to protect myself, you know, what are, what are some of the healthier mechanisms that you you know, I don't know. Cause we have so many survivors yeah. listening here who are probably trying things on for sites that aren't so productive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and before I say that, I think it's really important to still be show gratitude for even some of that stuff. Like, you know, we all we know how to use an umbrella on a rainy day. Right. And so that's a tool that we have learned that helps us when it's raining outside. But on a rainy day, on a sunny day, we still have that umbrella available to us, but we don't need to use it. Right. And so I think part of the healing is realizing, all right, I have these tools but I don't need to use them all the time. I only need to pull them out when I really need them. So I think, yeah. So I think, yeah, helping just to show compassion towards yourself and gratitude and pride for, you know, okay, I'm still learning that I have this tool, but I don't need to use it all the time on everybody. (laughs) Um, But I think, yeah, what you said, the healthy ones, definitely therapy. I think, you know, even searching for a therapist, some of us have shame over like, oh, this one doesn't feel like a good fit, but I can't like break up with them. Yes, you can. (laughs) And a good healthy therapist would be absolutely supportive of you finding a good fit for you. Um, So I think that's something that's really helpful. Um, just all the different types of like finding what gives you joy, finding what gives you peace, you know, the self-care thing. I think connecting with nature is really important and we overlook it a lot. You know, for me, it is going on nature walks or hikes, um, have been just, it gets you out of like the daily routine and grind. And it helps me to almost like pay attention to the world around me. Because when I'm super triggered in some way, it's, I am like so hypervigilant and like shaky. And like, I I just can't even, 
You know what I mean? It's everything's so big and like attacking me and it's really not. So if I can get out into nature and just pay attention to what's happening, you know, oh my gosh, there's a butterfly following me right now. You know what I mean? Or wow, that tree is in the shape of like, you know, a cross or a heart or something that like matters to me. And just like taking a moment to notice it just somehow brings peace and calm to my whole being in a way that like, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) So that get us out of that rabbit hole, that dark, dark dive that we can get into. Yes. Because I think even for in my therapy, current therapy, a lot of what I talk about with my personal trauma triggers is where, when I start to think this situation is dire, like something's happening with my child and it's just like, something so minute and stupid at school. Right. And I just think, Oh my God, this, this is horrible. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't focus. I I just feel, you know, that hypervigilance about it. And then come to find out, I'm like, this situation with my kid is so different from my situation as a kid. Like they're in a safe home. They have a safe father. You know, they can come and talk to me whenever they want. Like everything's different for this kid. But I put myself in the situation, it feels so dire. So I think, yes, getting into nature, having conversations with my therapist about it, really processing it. And this is going to sound really dumb, but having a dog. I have a Bernie's mountain dog. She's 110 pounds of fluff. And literally, she's one of my best therapists. Well, there's a reason they call them emotional support animals. You know oh my I mean? gosh. Yeah. And a dog that can actually spoon you. Like that's yeah. what I have. Like I would just crawl up in that. And you're like, this is <laughs> yeah. all I need. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, I think that's also just been really helpful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And um for all my listeners, we're talking to Nicole Braddock Bromley, and we're going to come back next week in part two, and we're going to dive into the work that Nicole is doing. It's really important, um, and it's it's it, it plays into the conversation we're having because Nicole offers resources for all of you listening. Um, we're going to dive into that, but before we do, I want to understand a little bit about your career trajectory you know did you you know you wanted to work in this field you know I get asked all the time is it must be really triggering for you to work in this field all the time and I say no it's it 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 complements my healing process right oh I love that get into this into this work and what did that trajectory look like for you? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's it, it really started back when I was a teenager, surprisingly. So, you know, I'd already shared with you earlier about the, you know, the summer of my 14 years. Like yeah. I ended up telling my mom, you know, everything went right. She reported it. She believed me. I'm so grateful for all of that. Um, and then within that time, a week later, my stepfather took his own life and that was really hard. And I think right after that was when I vowed literally the day that the police told us like your stepfather's dead, like I vowed in that moment, I will never tell my secret again. And I kept that vow for a full year. I never even told my best friend the truth. Everyone knew that my stepfather committed suicide, but no one knew why. And, um, so I, 
I remember the following summer, I was invited to this summer camp. And I went to this camp and the last day of camp, they had this time of open mic where anyone could come up and share, you know, something cool that had happened that week or whatever. Yeah. I ended up going up and telling my story in front of like 300 teens. Oh my God. And I don't know why. And I remember thinking, okay, no one here will ever date me. <laughs> like, wow. What did I just do? I just felt yeah. so empowered yes. you know, to do that. And I, and I went home and I was just like, okay, I literally, we have to move. Like, I can't ever see them again. Cause it was like crickets. Like I felt like such an idiot, Yeah. but this was back in the time before social media and all the things where we had pen pals. Gotta love the eighties. Gotta love the eighties. <laughs> so after like about three days to a week of being home after coming home from that camp, I started getting letters from other survivors at the camp. They were writing to me, telling me their stories for the first time. Almost all of them had never told anyone. They were like, Nicole, thank you so much for your courage to share that. I thought I was the only one. Yeah. And so I started writing back and forth with these survivors of sexual abuse when I was 15 and I just felt yeah. so compelled at that time. None of it was triggering for me. It was only empowering. I felt like, okay, as hard as it was for me to get up and tell my story that day, I'll do it again and again and again if it means someone else will come forward and find freedom. Wow. So that's where it started for me. And I, you know, I went to college, kind of studied psychology as most survivors do. Oh. Um and then I just, my senior year of college, I was shadowing like everybody in the field, you know, at crisis centers and things, working the hotlines in my community for um, sexual assault. And I was, I was shadowing a woman who went into the local schools and talking about like sexual harassment, rape, things like that. And I thought, this is awesome. I would love to educate, you know, students, but it was so boring. There was just this PowerPoint of definitions. And I told her after one of them, I said, you know what? I think it'd be really cool if you could share like a real story, like a survivor story. And she was like, well, if you can find a survivor brave enough to tell, you let me know. I was like, oh, well. Well, I'll do it. <laughs> I know. Welcome to my world. Welcome to my healing era. Yeah. Well, so the next time I did, and it was just completely different. So many students came forward and it was amazing. And it just continued to remind me the importance. So that's where it started. I started my own organization right out of college. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yep. One that, voice. Was yep. that, that was in 2014? No, I graduated college in 2002. So I started One Voice then, and then the anti-trafficking work didn't come until 2014. So you started One Voice all the way back then. Yes. Yep. Oh, my <laughs> Girl, you know, there, there's got to be something to be said to it was always meant to happen that way. I don't know. I don't have the answers of the universe, but... Right. The- there's something sort of divine in your story. Yeah. I mean, Aww. it's really, it's really powerful. Um, Thank you. For you to have the wherewithal to sort of step through that door and step into um, mm. the work that you were meant to be doing in this world is really, is really incredible. And that's a teaser. Well, same to you. We're coming back next week with. <laughs> 
We're going to hear all about the work that Nicole's doing. We're going to talk about One Voice and we're going to talk about her eight week program called Unleash Online Support um, and a course for survivors of sexual abuse. You guys need to hear this. Tune in next week. I love you all. We'll see you next week on Bar Fights. <laughs>